And welcome to episode 21. Bet Parks presents Stick to Hockey Live. Anthony DeMarco from the fourth period.com going to join us in just a moment. It's a crazy week, a little disjointed because of the holiday, but I hope everybody's going to have a good, safe, happy Thanksgiving tomorrow and uh, enjoy the holiday. It, from a hockey standpoint, it's obviously a tough time right now with a lot of guys out, but we'll talk about that and more. But let me tell you about a great time because it's a great time to get in on the Bet Parks app. If you're already there, this is a fun week because you've got tons of football coming up tomorrow and all through the weekend, college and pro. You got hoops, college and pro. You got hockey tonight. You've got hockey on Black Friday. It's going to be a lot of fun. So World Cup, you can obviously bet on that as well. Uh, so get the Bet Parks app. You're going to love it. It's easy to use. Same game parlays, live in-game betting, player performances, props, teasers, parlays, you name it. It's all there for you. And here's the Broad Street boost for this week. I like this one. I think this is a really interesting boost for tonight. Here's the Broad Street boost. Flyers are in Washington. And here's what you get. Ovechkin and Hayes, one plus points each. And the Flyers, plus one and a half in the game. So, Ovechkin and Hayes a point, and the Flyers plus one and a half. It was plus 280. We've boosted it on the Bet Parks app to plus 350. Again, Ovechkin and Hayes, one plus points each, and the Flyers plus one and a half. Hayes has been a point per game player. Ovi slightly under that, and their power play has struggled a bit, but plus 350, I like that play. So that's your Broad Street Booster tonight on the Bet Parks app. Download the app and uh, check it out. Open an account, and you're going to be happy you did because you get all your action in really easy to use. And download the Bet Parks app today. You need to be over 21 and present in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Also, Conquerville Subaru. Holidays. Great time to visit. A great dealership. Great people that do great work in the community. They were the first Subaru Nation Love Promise Dealer of the Year winner back in 2015. And right now, it's the Subaru Share the Love event, which is awesome. It started November 17th. It goes through January 3rd. And that's where Subaru will donate $250 for every new car sold to one of five charities, your choice, ASPCA, Make-A-Wish, Meals on Wheels, Nations Parks, and Conquerville's hometown charity, which is the Namor Children's Hospital of Delaware. It's a great time to visit the beautiful showroom on Route 202 in Glen Mills. Check it out. Check out all the certified pre-owned inventory, list of incoming Subaru vehicles, Great service department with a free car wash with every visit. So check them out. Visit ConquerVilleSubaru.com online and check out the showroom on Route 202 in Glen Mills. Remember, Conquerville cares. Tons to get to here on episode 21 of Bet Parks Presents Stick to Hockey Live. And we bring them in right now from north of the border, hanging out in Montreal. It is Anthony DeMarco. What's going on, Ant? Not too much, man. How's it going down there? How's how's the temperature being? And I'm not talking about the weather. <laughs> yeah, well, I, that's the thing. It's you know, you'd think the head coach John Tortorella would be fit to be tied right now, right? With a seven game winless skid, and you know all the elements thereof. But he's been in his media availability. He's very understanding of the situation, even saying, you know, we're trying to figure out who is who and who this team is, but how do we do that when you've got the likes of Konechny, Lawton, JVR, Coots, Cam Atkinson, and Wade Allison all out on the shelf right now, five of your top six. Allison, you could make a top six. That top six right there would probably be better than the, certainly better than the top six that they have right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, aside from Kevin Hayes, who is currently in the Flyers' top six that you kind of would have expected them to have to start the year? Like, Joel Farabee, maybe. 
maybe with the way Owen Tippett is playing. But even at that point, I think both, like Tippett was more projected star on the third line. But, you know, JVR, Katori, Atkinson for sure. Konechny's their leading goal scorer, their leading point getter, probably at this point would be their MVP before the injury. And it's just been like a perfect storm. I thought they were playing good hockey. I do think against Calgary and against Montreal, it got a bit more sloppy. Obviously, Calgary's a team that's really starting to turn their team around. Carter Hart not playing as good as he was earlier in the season, but I'm still not going to leave a lot of blame at his feet given what he did earlier in the season. But, you know, when you're missing that many players specifically up front to a team that's already offensively starred and lacks that high-end offensive talent, there's only so much you could really expect of these guys. And now you're kind of starting to see the cream rise to the top. We're getting back to that ever so important uh, checkpoint of the American Thanksgiving as typically it's basically you are what you are. And the Flyers hovering one game under Hockey 500 are just kind of staying afloat in the race for the playoffs. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that we none of us really had that delusion that they're going to be able to hang in that mix. And tomorrow's mm-hmm. American Thanksgiving. And, you know, that's that line of demarcation at where if you're in a playoff position at American Thanksgiving, you got an 80% chance or history says 80% of those teams end up in the, in the playoffs. And if you're in, you know, not in the mix, you very unlikely that you are the team they face actually tonight, Washington is not there right now. We'll see if they can get their, you know, their shit together and get to the playoffs. I don't know that they can, but um, we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, this Flyers team with all of these injuries and, the way that they're having to deal with it. You know, I was set to talk to Torts today. We kind of delayed it because he got stuck in a meeting. And one of the questions I wanted to ask him at is how, how is a coach and a guy, he's a guy that says he coaches the mind, right? How is a coach preventing players that here we go again, defeated mentality? Because you, you played sports. I played sports a ton too. And, and I coach now and I see it when, you know, we were light on players or certain players are out. There's that automatic human nature that kicks in and goes, oh, we got, we're missing all these key guys. Here we go again. And you beco- and it almost is a self-fulfilling prophecy that there's no way you can turn it around. I don't know how Torts can, you know, coach that out of them or coach the mind to not to let that creep in. It's, it's almost, I think it's almost impossible. Well, yeah, especially given the history of this team. And, you know, I think at least on some level, a lot of these guys aren't used to that type of, I guess, uh, the losing culture here, for lack of better words, like guys like, let's say, Owen Tippett, haven't been, you know, brought up in all this, you have some of the other youngsters that may be on their roster, like a Willman, although he was here last year, Lazinski has gotten a cup of coffee, but you know, you still have a lot of guys here who have lived through this before. And like you said, that here we go again mentality with like a Kevin Hayes and Ivan Provorov, Travis Sanheim, Justin Braun. Like these are kind of like the leaders on this team right now. Although I don't know if anyone's really wearing a, a letter on their jersey at this moment. But I think at this point, it is just about trying to look at the positives. And, you know, it's hard to try to point out any positives during a seven-game losing streak. But I think the fact that they're not getting blown out games, obviously the 5-2 score wasn't indicative of the actual game against Calgary as there were two empty net goals. But they're being competitive. They're not getting trucked over. Like, obviously against Calgary, it wasn't as good of a showing as, let's say, their previous games, although Montreal was kind of sloppy in and of itself as well. 
But again, like given who they're missing here, like it's really hard to kind of shit on this team right now. And for a team that I believe is bottom five in goals for per game, I don't know if that changed over the weekend. I know it was uh, that was the case leading into Monday, I believe. But it's it's unfortunately you're at a point here where you can't really ask more than what they've been given here. Yeah, and and that's the thing. I I do believe that they have worked hard. They're actually you know, 31 in the NHL right now in goals for games played tied with the Anaheim Ducks at 2.53 goals per game. Only one team below them, and that's the Chicago Blackhawks at 2.44. We knew offense was going to be a struggle this year. I mean, and and look what's out of the lineup. Perennial 25 to 30 goal scorer JVR. Konechny certainly on a 30-goal pace at 324 goal seasons in a row. Um, Lawton, you know, maybe 15 goals. Couturier, 30 goal scorer. Cam Atkinson, maybe at this point in his career, 25 to 30. And Wade Allison, you know, we don't know. That's, there's not really there. But I mean, that's what, 30, 45, uh, 70, about 110 goals right there that's out of the lineup right now. <laughs> For an offensively starved team. Yeah. yeah. Holy cow. That's, that's daunting. I never really put it together like that. Since I didn't answer. Get to the ass torch this question. Pretend you're torch. I'm going to ask you. I'll one try the, my best. <laughs> I'm doing my torch interview on you. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things torch mentioned when he was hired, the first thing I'm going to tackle is the locker room, is the room. And he used the word, it was fractured last year. Um, leadership, you know, and you know, no Drew here, a lot of turnover. And he was going to attack that right away. How do you attack that? with none of these guys playing because torts definitely strikes me as a, if you're not available, I can't worry about you right now. I can only make lineups with the guys that are available. And I, so I don't even know how he's been able to attack that element of what he termed a fractured locker room last year. Well, yeah, you can only really worry about things that you can control. And in terms of the locker room, you kind of have to look at the guys who were there last year, the former, or I guess are still kind of leaders of this team. And I look at two guys in particular, and that's Kevin Hayes and Ivan Provorov. I think Ivan Provorov has probably been their best defenseman this year. Like, obviously, the analytics haven't been perfect for him. He's been a very high-event defenseman. But if you look in terms of, like, the shots generated – per 60 and individual shot attempts per 60 Provorov is far and away leading the Flyers in that regard. I think he's really kind of helped the Flyers up the ice and especially lately the last eight, five, six games, I think D'Angelo's play has slipped a bit and you look how much Ivan Provorov is playing at five on five. I think he's playing like 19 minutes, five on five. And whenever you're a player playing that much on a team that isn't very good your analytics are never going to be perfect your stat line is never going to be perfect but the fact that Shaw and Tortorella keep deploying him out there in such heavy minutes and really in offensive zone minutes because they've really used that D'Angelo Provorov pair to help drive the offense up the ice even to sacrifice at your own end of it so I think in that regard you've seen a really positive turnaround for Ivan Provorov And then you look at a guy like Kevin Hayes, and I don't know what this guy did to be public enemy number one, um, but he has a point per game. And I think he's someone that, yes, he he was challenged by torts earlier in the year. And is he perfect defensively? No. But again, for a guy who's probably, you know, an average 2C and maybe even a 3C, although I would say he's an an average 2C on most teams, 
I don't know what more you could expect from him who has been thrusted into like a 1C all situations rule this season. And he's averaging a point per game. And, you know, if you look back on his four parts of four seasons with the Flyers going back to starting in 2019-20, if you average his point totals over 82 games, I believe he averages like 53, 54 points. And I think for what you brought Hayes in to do, if you would have told me, you know, three and a bit years in that he would be averaging almost 55 points a season. I'd be okay with that, especially given the fact that he's been so over deployed given what he was brought in here to do. You know, the day he was signed, he was kind of supposed to be a temporary two C until a Nolan Patrick or Morgan Frost overtook him. And that's never happened. And look, obviously he's been shifted over to the wing because of his defensive shortcomings but, you know, you still see him, you know, kind of take that on the chin and keep going and at, put a goal in uh, while playing on the left wing with it was with Cates and McEwen, I believe. Yep. And for him to, you know, generate, you know, another or it wasn't a goal, actually. It was uh, I think he got the assist on the Olesinski tip in. Yeah. So high point shot. Yeah. So all in all, I, I look at those two guys, given who have been out of the lineup, and I think both of them have, for the most part, really responded well as leaders on this team for several years. The thing is with Hayes, like from an optics standpoint, based on moving him to the wing on a team that's so banged up with a lack of centers to move him to the wing from an optics standpoint is really kind of almost head scratching. But yeah. then what Twart said is we need to develop Cates at, at the center position and he's more defensively responsible. Now that's not, I was surprised he verbalized it. It's not shocking because that is not a Hayes' strong point. He, there's a lot of risk in, in Kevin Hayes' game in the yeah. zone, you know, looking to get out early. He's not the fastest skater in the world. So he does need sometimes to cheat the play to lead the rush. Right. And, you know, he can be a more effective offensive player. I believe from the wing because, Me too. Of, yeah, because of his puck possession ability, his distribution ability and, you know, all those things in a team that star for offense, it does make sense from that standpoint and to move him to the wing. He took a ton of face-offs playing the wing still. You know, like when Drew was on the wing, he was still taking a ton of draws. But th there are some elements, and, and this is, you know, one of Tort's big things is, you know, what do you do defensively away from the puck? Like in that game against Boston, that first goal that Noshek scored, you know, he's coming down that, that right side as the play's developing behind the net. A couple guys pursue, and, and Hayes turns to the corner. And, and had he turned to the play, he would have been right there to break it up. I just don't know why he would arc to the corner in that situation. You're always taught to arc towards the play, to turn to the play, the middle. Don't turn to the outside defensively. That was he was playing center too still, still then. I didn't understand why he did that. It's a head scratcher to me. I don't know what was going on over in that corner. I couldn't see on my television, but must have been something good. So he's got some you know, bad habits defensively in his game. He tends to go to space sometimes, even in the offensive zone, Ant, that I always term it as inconsequential space on the ice where they don't, you're you're not a threat without the puck to get the puck and be a threat. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think he gets, you know, grows a little bit of roots in those places and, you know, just kind of hangs out there and it's not the right place to be because the D is happy you're there. When the D's happy where you are, <laughs> In your in their zone, you're not in a good spot. Yeah, and he's not the most flayed of foot guy either, right? 
So mm-hmm. I find you can see him cheating in either zone sometimes. Like at times, like kind of like to your point in the offensive zone, he almost seems too high where he's mm-hmm. not really effective on the forecheck because he's cheating because he isn't as fast to get back. But I remember when they signed him and everyone was kind of freaking out that he would box out uh, a Nolan Patrick. We know how that went. Yeah. Um, I long thought from watching Kevin Hayes in New York and then briefly in Winnipeg in the 2019 playoffs that he would always be a guy that eventually would probably translate very well to the wing because of his size, because he does have a knack for, I guess, finding ways to contribute offensively. And I think that if he could worry about simply playing down low and because he's such a bigger body and he wouldn't have to be worrying about having to peel back offensively, wouldn't have to cheat, I think he could do a lot of damage. And look, his game is not perfect. Like among Flyers forwards this season, he has the the worst on ice expected goal differential. At ne- it's almost negative five. I think it's a negative four point seven six per money puck or four point four six. But then the other three guys who have that as well: Owen Tippett, Travis Kadetney, and Joel Farabee. And with the ex- exception of Joel Farabee, I think I would argue that Tippett and Travis Kadetney have been their two best forwards along with Kevin Hayes this season. Not even so close. I think, exactly. Yeah. So I think that, and, and the same goes for like Ivan Provorov, the same goes for Tony D'Angelo, even Travis Sanheim to a bit of a lesser extent, is that when you are heavily relied on players, both offensively and defensively, on a, not a bottom feeder, but not a very good team that has struggled to possess the puck and win the expected goals and chances for battle, you're not your analytics are not going to be perfect but i think that given the situation that he was dealt and this is kevin hayes i'm talking about playing above his head oftentimes with line mates who probably shouldn't be anywhere near top six case in point noah cates and zach McEwen, and the fact that he's a point per game player i don't really see what's wrong here and you know like i've asked about like how people view him around the league in terms of like if he were to become available by the Flyers. And obviously we know that they would trade almost anybody for the right price. But, you know, I've had people say like he has negative value. He has the worst contract in the NHL and all this. And I say like for a 50 to 55 point center with at $7 million, there's three years left on his contract who could play all situations. It's not really an egregious contract. Is he overpaid? Yeah, I think in an ideal world, Kevin Hayes is like a $5.756 million player. But if you're trying to find that in free agency, you're going to overpay regardless. Like you, mm-hmm. you see like... And, look, and you Nazem- have to give more term too, regardless. Exactly. And like you look at an Nazem Kadri, who obviously coming off the career year, but I think overall he's like a career 60, 65 point guy. So 10 points more per season than Kevin Hayes. He signs a seven by seven million dollar contract when he's thirty two. Yeah, that's like, crazy. So if you're a team, and I and for whatever reason, I know a lot of people look at Boston. I look at Colorado as a team that could use a Kevin Hayes, like a solid two seat to play behind McKinnon. I don't know that for certain. That's just me just speculating. I think there'd be a decent amount of teams that would at least inquire about his services, given only three years left on that contract. And in terms of what have you done for me lately? The guy's playing really well offensively. Yeah, I mean, the point it's almost stunning that he's a point per game player with, you know, five goals and 14 assists in 19 games, 19 points that on a team that doesn't score a lot. Yeah, it's 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 pretty stunning uh that he's able to do that. 
Um, Eric messages in and says, I think it's time to trade people now. JVR, Sealer, Braun, Risto, Frost, Hayes. Then Everyone. Zamula <laughs> and Ratcliffe. He said he can't spell well. Um, <laughs> right now, is Eric, is not the time to trade people. There is when, – when you're making trades, you want to do it when you can get as many teams involved as possible to drive up the compensation of a trade. And there's no urgency right now to make all those kind of any or and all of those kind of deals. It's, you're not seeing trades happen yet. I, I think Jim Rutherford's probably going to kick it off at some point. He usually does out in Vancouver, but there's not that urgency right now. The reason why he hasn't done anything yet either is because he can't get multiple teams involved. And there's teams with needs like Toronto, Ottawa, both need D really mm. bad, you know, but. A GM looking to to trade guys away is not making that deal until he can get multiple teams bidding for the same player. You know, Carlson's a name that's out there right now. Eric Carlson's having a just unbelievable year. I'm stunned by it. But, you know, is he a guy? Now, Jacob Chickren's out there because he's back with Arizona. You know, there's so there's some players available, but now's not the time to trade all of those guys. JVR has been injured and is not even back yet. You don't trade him now. Sealer's can't, gonna, I don't even think. Yes. I mean, Sealer's not going to get you much. Braun is a deadline acquisition. Yeah. Rista Linen's got a lot of the term left. I, I'm not saying he's untradeable. I think he is tradable. Um, and Hayes and, you know, York is down with the Phantoms for a reason. Now, he is leading them in points. He's playing well. Um, and he'll be probably be back up here at some point this year. But they need him at the NHL level to have the same urgency he's playing with down with the Phantoms right now, and now's not the time. It's too early. You're not saving your season, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and another thing that we have to remember here, and, and look, I think there are going to be several guys here traded. Like, I think Braun, by the time the deadline comes, will be gone. Sedlak, JVR, probably. Like, these are guys that are not part of the future here. But at the same time, this season, as much as it is about setting up for the future, it's also about setting a standard. Like I spoke to some with the Flyers on Friday and they were very steadfast that like this season has gone as expected in terms of what the hockey ops wanted. And one that thinks is setting a better standard, a better work ethic. And what kind of mood would that set if you're a team that is battling injuries you're absolutely like breaking your ass because they're working hard. They're staying in games despite all these injuries. And then your GM starts trading up all your healthy players. Like a guy like Justin Braun, get rid of him. You trade a guy like Nick Sealer, who's been very good. You, It's not going to set a good precedent and it's not going to really encourage your players or your coaching staff if you start gutting your team before the calendar even flips to January. So, like you said, I think guys are going to move, but I just don't think it's going to happen now. And you look at the 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 trade market across the NHL, like nobody really makes moves at this time. Like you look at a Toronto team who's missing their top three defensemen. I don't even know if they're going to make a deal before January, because as you said, you're not going to try and get ahead of the market. Well, you could try and get ahead of the market, but most teams don't until you see who else is available and you don't pay for a guy when you could have maybe gotten someone better or better fit for less. And the other part about this is, is that they want to be competitive next year, in my opinion, based on mm -hmm. conversation I just had. They want this still to be 
a relatively quick turnaround. So if you start again, like let's use Aristo and Sealer for an example, like Nick Sealer to me as a number seven D who has some cost certainty going into next season, is it worth trading that guy when you're probably going to need that exact same guy and you're probably going to get what a fifth round pick for him. And even the thing with Rasmus Ristolainen, like I would argue for either side, trade him if you could get a good return, but you're still going to have to go get that same player if you want to be competitive next year. And you're probably going to pay just about the same thing to go get him. Like, I know like people hate Ristolainen, and I get that, but if you look across the NHL, like right shot defensemen, especially bigger ones, are some of the most overvalued commodities in the entire league. Like Jacob Truba makes $8 million a year. Tyler Myers makes $6 million a year and is probably going to gain assets for the Vancouver Canucks at the trade deadline. Erica Branson got signed to a $16 million contract this summer. So even if you want to get him and get, get him out and get whatever you can, and I know people don't want to believe this, but as you said, I think you could get at least something for him. You're still going to have to turn around and go spend that money on a similar type of player next year if you want to be competitive. So you have to be careful with who you just jettison off this roster. Yeah, there's a there's a cost for a replacement too. Exactly. In the rising cap world, that if the cap goes up, a decent chunk this year, that price goes up for exactly. a second pair defenseman, you know, right shot guy. All those prices are going to go up because you signed some of these guys before the cap began to rise means that you're basing it on that salary cap and it could change really quickly. Like you, like Jason Robertson, like his contract and you go, but it's going to work out long-term. You might be a little overpaid now, but I mean, he's basically underpaid right now for what he's doing. Because he signed this under the structure of this cap, not the cap that's coming. Because yeah. the, the really thing, the thing you got to look at, the most important number is percentage of cap. Is really the because yeah. this is a puzzle that you got to put together. So um, that's a big part of the equation. Um, Matt uh, messages in. Matt Aston says, "Hey guys, thanks again for the pod and conversation." Then he says. There's been a lot of talk, good talk about accountability with the front office or players in particular. Could you speak a little to the continued poor performance employment by the scouting developmental staff? Now, let's talk about that because, you know, the way they, the scouting department, there's two different scouting departments. There's the amateur scouts, which gets you ready for a draft. And then there's the pro scouts, which are trades. They really haven't made trades um, that, you know, we, we would be able to put them on the griddle for. Uh, the amateur scouting, and you look at their drafts, you know, I don't think they've drafted poorly. I really don't. And, you know, you look at how they've drafted and what they've gotten. And somebody else here mentions, uh, let me see, let me bring it up real quick. Uh, Matt says again, he says, uh, a huge issues is that often ignored in talking about the team is, aside from Giroux in 06, Katuri in 11, Connecting in 15, and Hart in 16, it's a short list of real talent introduced to the NHL. And I... You know, there's a lot of misses in there, and there's a lot of years in there where they didn't have a first-round pick. But you go back to 06, you're right. You get Giroux in that draft. He's the player that comes out. In 07, you lose the coin flip, which is a joke. You could have had uh, Patrick Kane, but you end up with James Van Riemsdyk, who's played 885 games and has 567 points in this league. You also drafted Pat Maroon in that draft, but in the sixth round. And then in 2008, it was Spiza, who you used to get um, Chris Pronger. And also, uh, 
that was a first round pick. And then in 09, no first round picks. Your first pick's 81. Nobody in that draft. Eric Wellwood, I guess, played a little bit. And Oliver Larson had a you know, cup of coffee for 16 games. In 2010, no first round pick. Their first pick was 89. And then 2011, it's Couturier, Nick Cousins, that draft. Uh, 2012, you end up with Scott Lawton. Still Lars is still in the league. Goss Despair still in the league. Um, then 2013, Sam Moran didn't work out. Uh, Robert Haig still in the league in that draft um, and has played 312 games in the league. Uh, 14, it's Travis Sanheim, Albe Kubel. He's played 179 games. Friedman and Oscar Limblom in that draft. And then 15, it's Pro Rolf Konechny, yeah. Felix Nanstrom. Um Cooper Morody, maybe we see him a little bit, and Fedotov. Sixteen's uh, a problem. Rusev yeah, in the first round of twenty-two, but you got Hart in the second round of forty-eight, and Wade Allison in that draft. And then in seventeen, this is obviously the rough one because you move all the way up to two. You take Patrick, you get Frost and Ratcliffe, Ustamenko, and Noah Cates are in that draft, and Ole Lixell as well. Eighteen, you get Farabee. Yeah, Jay O'Brien. Who knows what the hell he's playing better now? But you also grab Sam Urson in that draft. 19, it's Cam York. You pass Cole Caulfield twice and Brink and Ronnie Adderd. Those guys all probably will play in the NHL. And then For Forster, Emil Andre, and Wait, Wisdom, and Denoye in 20. Um, I know I'm going on here. <laughs> 2021, you got, you know, Tamala, no first-round pick there. Kolosov as well, who looks like he could develop into a good goaltender. Then, obviously, last year, the topic is Cutter Gauthier. So, I disagree that they haven't yeah. – drafted well and but development is a big part of the equation and you got to develop these guys and that's going to be the task at hand but they've drafted a lot of nhl players for sure it's not just been the guys that he listed yeah i get what he was going for but i think he just worded it incorrectly like they've had a lot of players that have translated into nhl caliber players like farabee Konechny, morgan frost is an nhl player Ivan Provorov, Travis Sanheim, Robert Hag, Carter Hart, uh, Shane Gostisbehere, like Wade Allison. Like they have a lot of guys who are NHLers. The problem is, is that they never drafted that star. And that's an issue. The issue yeah, that's is where that 17 really hurts when you get lucky and go up to number two. And exactly. Nolan Patrick is there. Oh. Yeah, and like you know, sixteen is a big year for for um, Ron Hextall because he had four picks inside the top fifty-five, I believe. And look, you hit on Carter Hart. I think Wade Allison is still a good pick, more or less. But you know, Laberge and Rubsov as your top two guys, and I think Hextall as a whole, with the exception of Morgan Frost, I guess, kind of all of his center picks completely blew up in his face. Like yeah. you look at Laberge, Rubsov, Bonamin. Vorobiev, Patrick, like all of them completely blew up. And we know that Hextall had a habit of taking high ceiling or low ceiling, high floor players, which I mean, in a lot of ways it worked out sometimes, but in other ways it didn't. And then you look at Chuck Fletcher and obviously the, the Cam York pick is getting harder and harder to defend, especially forget about Cole Caulfield, but you move back from a pick that could have landed you a Matthew Boldy and then even at when you selected York at it was 14, I believe they selected him. You not only pass on Caulfield, but you pass on Peyton Krebs, you pass on Alex Newhook. But again, does that mean that York is a bad pick? Probably. It doesn't mean that he's a bust or whatever. I think he's going to be a fine NHL player, but it doesn't look good based on what you have. 
uh, or what the lacking what you have. And I've said this for a while is that I think that the Fletcher Flair drafting regime, that part of their regime rather, will be weighed heavily on what happens with Cutter Gauthier and to a lesser extent Tyson Forster. Because the thing is, is that even if Cam York doesn't pan out, it's going to look bad because of the guys you passed on, specifically Caulfield. But you are stacked with talent at the left shot D position throughout your organization, including uh, in the NHL. But Goatsy and Forster are your only aces in the hole of getting true high-end offensive contributors at the NHL level. And Forster is probably more of a 25-goal second-line guy, kind of like maybe like a higher-end higher end Owen Tippett. But Gauthier, in my opinion, to this point, is the one guy that absolutely has to hit. Because aside from him, I don't think you have any player in your system that projects to be a top-line caliber player. He'd be perfectly – he'd be a guy that's a great on the wing, on a two, you know, a second line, on a good team, if you get some lottery luck and you could land a Bedard or a Fantilli this yeah. offseason, right? <laughs> then yeah. you go, oh, man, look what we have now. We have – a, a superstar, you know, top line center in the making. And we have a guy that could be, I think could really be a good, good player in the NHL, like high end Kreider type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of what you see out of Gauthier as well? Yeah. And like, I, more I think Boston Kreider, I guess. Yeah. And probably more of a natural goal scorer that mm-hmm. like he could probably shoot score more from distance as opposed for a Kreider who's very just like going to the dirty areas and just jam the puck in <laughs> from just being at 50 last year. So. Yeah, I know it was, it, it was insane, but I, and I think Goatsy for the most part has been playing left wing with at Boston. You, I don't mm-hmm. know if he, so, I mean, obviously you want him as a center, but you're not going to force the issue. I'm not and starting then, him there in the NHL at center. You don't think so? I don't start him at center. I start him on the wing just to let him assimilate. If he comes in this year after his college season, I start him on the wing and let him – don't give him the responsibility of center right out of the gate. I think depending what happens with the lottery is going to kind of depend on what we see them do this summer. Like if you get a top three pick and you're going to get a Bedard or a Fantilli, then maybe you don't have to go big him, big game hunting for a center. You don't have to worry about a Horvat or a Larkin or whatever. But if you get something in that 5 to 10 range and you're not getting that franchise center – then I think maybe you do go after one of those two guys I just referred to. And I, I, I kind of brought this up last week because someone asked me my top three things that I would do this summer. And one of those things would be choosing maybe between a Farabee and a Konechny on who to hang on to long-term. And this isn't me saying that's imperative that they get rid of one and only keep one of them, but more so me saying that like, given the current state of the salary cap in the NHL, you can't have too many wingers in that like $5 million range. Mm-hmm. And you see they have Atkinson, you have Konechny, you have Farabee. Tippett's probably going to be a guy that in a year and a half is going to fall in that range. Do you think that maybe one of those guys will have to be, not jettison because you're going to get a good value, but do you think they may would be best served to move on from one of those guys, gain assets and reallocate that money to the center ice position? Pending, like you said, pending what happens in the draft and draft lottery. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can use the equity of your depth at wing to be able to supplement the importance of the middle. Yeah. Look, I mean, this is no slight to wingers, but 
centers are more important. They drive a team. You know, the way you build your team is up the middle. Goaltending, defense, and centers. You know, wings are much easier to replace than a center is. Now, there's obviously only four centers on a team, and there's way more wingers. There's eight wingers, right? Yeah. (laughs) So it it stands to reason, but it's just the fact of the matter. A couple more things. Uh, Matt also messages in, Matt Aston says, for those of us not privy to the inside info, would you mind speaking on the influence slash structure of the Flyers front office? Clearly, Chuck Fletcher works in collaboration. Who are the other big names, either as staff or alumni? I think when you're talking about Matt, and you can speak to this too, because you talk to guys in the organization, but I think when you're talking about trades and all of those things, alumni have no, they're not in the day to day. They're not in that. Like Bob Clark's not in on that, you know, saying, Hey, we should try and grab this player. He's not scouting or anything like that. He playing golf. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's playing golf in Florida at this time of year. He's not in Flynn Flon. It's too cold for him in Flynn Flon right now, but so those guys are not involved. And yeah, it is collaborative. You know, Brent Flair and his scouting department are a huge part. Alan McCauley is a huge part of the equation. Uh, from a development standpoint, and you know, all of those guys in the scouts and Joachim Grumberg over in Sweden handling the European duties, they're all a part of that collaborative effort. Um, you know, the dynamics. And then you obviously have guys like Danny Briere, who goes to a lot of rinks and is watching guys. So it's all part of the equation uh, in collaboration. And then the other part of that too, Ant, is the collaboration with the coach and with the, you know, with Torch trying to figure out who's who and who's going to be here going forward. Once you get the answers to those, then you go, okay, these are the guys that aren't, so we're going to move them or do whatever. And then you got to figure out what, based on who those guys were, where are the holes that we now have to fill? Yeah. And you don't have that answer just yet. We don't know how Torts feels about that and his evaluation. It's going to take a lot more time. Yeah. Like I I think over the last 12 months, you've seen a ton of guys added to that front office, like Alan McCauley, he's director of player personnel. Is that his title? Mm -hmm. Um, Then Tom Minton is, is he development or he's not the analytics guy? I don't believe it. No, uh, the analyst guy is Ian Anderson. Ian Anderson Anderson from uh, yes. (laughs) <laughs> so then Tom Minton, I forget his title, him and Macaulay were brought in. Ian Anderson was brought in over the last 12 months. You get Danny Breer, who was elevated from his role in the ECHL to the special assistant to the GM, even though he was doing some scouting and helping in on player development beforehand. Brent Flair is effectively the general manager of the Phantoms and oversees their amateur scouting department. So, I, I mean, I think that maybe one fault you could have about the structure of their front office. And like you said, the alumni guys like Barber, Lombardi, Holmgren, like they're only in on big decisions, specifically Clark and Holmgren. Obviously we know that they pushed hard for a guy like John Tortorella, but you know, I've heard a lot of people say like, you know, we went from one guy in Hextall who like ruled with an iron fist to now having too many cooks in the kitchen. And now there's too many voices and there's indecisiveness, but I think more and more, you're seeing a lot of front offices operate this way by really delegating more. Like you look at the Toronto Maple Leafs, like I think they have like five assistant general managers. It is absolutely bananas what they have going on there. You look at the, um, the Montreal Canadians where you have Jeff Gorton as the executive vice president of hockey ops. And then Ken Hughes as the GM. I think more and more you're seeing teams kind of really spread the wealth in terms of, 
responsibilities throughout their hockey ops department. It's been slow, you know, but I think more and more that's where it's trending towards. And, you know, even um, Chuck Fletcher holding the title of both president of hockey ops and as general manager, like, I wonder if that is, I I guess they kind of go hand in hand, but he's not only overseeing all the guys we just mentioned, but he's also, you know, on the phones with other general managers, overseeing all the daily transactions. And I think that maybe it would be best served if like they eventually split those two titles. Like obviously it's not like in Toronto where there's just one president, like in Brendan Shanahan for the entire organization or in, or in Boston where you have Cam Neely. Like the Flyers kind of split it with hockey ops, which is Fletcher. And I guess it's Val Camillo on the business side. She's the yep. president. But so at least that eases his um, his responsibility list. But I do think maybe eventually, given how much workload goes into, you know, managing an organization on a day-to-day basis, they'd be best served kind of splitting up the president of hockey ops and the GM eventually down the line, which I do think is eventually something that will happen here. Yeah, you see that all over, like Rutherford and Vancouver, like, yeah. like the guys you mentioned as well. There's a ton of that with Brendan Shanahan in Toronto handling those duties and as a liaison between business and hockey ops. And I mean, even look for years when Ed Snyder owned the team, there was a division there between the general manager, whether it was, you know, Paul Holmgren or whoever. And like, you know, Sean Tilger was the guy that ran the business ops. He was the vice president of, of the business ops and Peter Luco kind of overseed both at that time. Yeah. So that's always kind of been a structure that they've had. Uh, we're getting a lot of questions today on the stream, so let's take them because mm-hmm. these people are asking good questions. They want answers, damn it. I'm going to get to a, mm-hmm. a string of tweets from uh, one of our friends that I've been highly critical of in a second. But Michael uh, uh, Kaminis, I hope I said it right, Michael. I hope you have a good holiday. He said, long-time listener, first, long-time listener, first-time chatter. He said, now that Risto finally has some stable coaching, do you think if he shows honest defensive play, we'll see him earn some PP time? Still think Sanheim plays best with him. Um, I think – we. To, you know, PP2, we saw a little bit of that under AV and uh, Mike Yo with Risto, not a ton. Um, he saw a lot of power play time in Buffalo, which led him to, I think, three or four straight 45-plus point seasons. But, um, you know, Risto's an interesting one for me. I don't know if Torts sees him as a power play guy. He's got a bomb for a shot, so I don't think it would be a bad idea. Good fortune. Yeah. I think we've seen him supplement a little bit there as well. So um, I think it's possible that we could see that and see him on power play too. I don't think he's power play one because that's clearly Tony D'Angelo. Um, but I think we could see that. I think he's a guy that could end up on the power play. I've been beating the drum for 2D on at least one unit for some time. And yeah, I think Risto is a guy that since he's come to Philadelphia, they've kind of been resistant to use him in that role. And I do think that there's an element to this, that they want him to be a certain type of defenseman, which I do think is kind of like fitting a square peg into a round hole. I do think lately they've used him better. I think, you know, the last game certainly wasn't his best, but I think if you look at the lo- the last eight game sample size, he's played fairly well. Even his underlying numbers would suggest that. But, you know, Charlie O'Connor has said this a lot recently, and it's true, is that he was talking specifically about Morgan Frost, but stands with Risto as well, is that, like, on a team like the Flyers that lack so much talent, you can only put so many players in a position to succeed. And at a certain point, you just have to make the best of the situation. And, look, I do think that when this team is fully healthy, 
I would try Risto or even right now I would try him on the power play because I think he could help you on that second unit. You know, on uh, on the PP1, you have an Owen Tippett who obviously works that Giroux wall and is a good one-time option. But I think if you put Risto there on PP2 right now in that similar spot or as a net front guy, but I prefer utilizing a shot, which you alluded to, I think it could work. I mean, I don't think it's so much about them wanting for him to correct his defensive game first. I do think he's been trending in the right direction his last eight games or so, except for the hiccup last game for sure. I just think it's that they want to use him more in a five-on-five like penalty kill role because they think that they lack in D'Angelo too for more offensive. Well, they've been very steadfast that those are the two guys on the back and they want being offensive. Like, look, even Travis Sanheim, like he's been completely used, except for last game, I think he was playing on the second power play unit, but he's been almost exclusively used as like their shutdown defenseman. So with the exception of program and D'Angelo, all of these defensemen have really been, you know, kind of not, not pulled back offensively, but certainly been used more so as defense first guys. Yeah, I agree. And for a team that lacks dynamic scoring up front, you need that top pair and two guys that have offensive elements to their game on the blue line in D'Angelo and Provorov to be able to chip in offensively. You know, when the Flyers in 1920 were the seventh highest scoring team in the league, they didn't have a dynamic scorer then either. But what they had was a defense that was number two in the NHL in point production. That was a huge element of that a huge element getting that scoring from the blue line. Yeah. And they probably had a more well-rounded because I, I forget how the deployment went there because I feel like Provorov and Niskanen were deployed a lot in the D zone back yeah. then. And you, and you had Sanheim and Myers more on the offensive side of the puck. And then on your third pair, you had either Hag or Goss to spear more so Hag with Justin Braun and Justin Braun, obviously three years younger was able to play more of a prominent role back then. But I think at this point, you're just kind of missing maybe that one more defensive stall more that can eat minutes in a in an efficient manner. I think that's the guy they're missing because I like D'Angelo, but obviously Niskanen was a guy that more so controlled the game, could steady game down, could be relied on more in his own end. And if Provorov forechecked hard up the ice and tried to jump into the rush, you could trust Niskanen back. I don't think it works the same way with Tony D'Angelo. I'm not saying it works bad or even worse, but I just think what they're missing now is another minute munching eating defenseman who could be trusted in his own. And I think that's the one element about the current structure of their defense is that like, obviously Justin Braun is not a long-term solution. And I don't know if that's Risto's game and if he could do that long-term in an effective manner. Yeah, I agree with that. And the one thing that Niskanen could do was he could give you three successive low event shifts when you needed them. You know what I mean? To really calm a game down. And his presence, because he could do that, was infectious on the bench as well. They knew they could calm a game down and not let it get out of control. Um, Last thing, Ant, I want to bring up this tweet from uh, Russ Joy. And I'm going to be a little nicer today than I've been to Russ (laughs) on other occasions he came on after i ripped him last time and he was a good sport. yeah and he had his say which is fine and he, he's certainly entitled to his opinions but i want to read this to you and I, i'm have, i have a little commentary and i want to get your response as well of course i have commentary uh, <laughs> he put this string together last night yesterday at 242 on the 22nd of november 2022 and he said 
Um, wild to see so many Flyers fans coming to terms with the losing and the injuries. Open calls for tanking. I was told that line of thinking at the start of the season was the wrong path forward. I was an asshole, blah, blah, blah. Welcome to the right side of history. And he continues and says, them. The injuries aren't the GM's fault. Me. Building a roster that relies on injury-prone players contributing and staying healthy is. Them. Torts is going to bring a winning culture. You can't ask players to lose. Me. You can build a bad team that tries hard. And then he concludes with, it all comes back to a disjointed execution, lack of vision, and flawed process. The team did what we thought it could early, play hard for their coach, take advantage of conditioning advantage after a tough camp. The injuries and talent were always going to catch up to them. Now, my problem with this string of tweets is this. (laughs) Um, There's some things that he says in there that I, I don't think are debatable, and I agree with them. You know, but there's elements in there. And I think it's the reason why I have a problem with it is simply because it's so fucking revisionist. This is the guy that in the offseason advocated hard for the team to go out and trade for a 40 goal scorer in Alex to and also railed against the team and wanted them to go out and sign a 29 year old winger and Johnny Gaudreau for huge money. So, This is a prime case of trying to have your cake and eat it too. You cannot advocate for those things and say you're, you wanted the team to tank because it, it's not consistent. And this string of tweets, I look at it and go, this is a guy that wants to get some attention and get some replies and people called him out on it. And I mean, I don't know what to say. It's, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bite my tongue a little bit today for once in my life. Yeah. Like, I mean, there are some people that wanted to bring Cat and Giant Gaudreau. Like my co-host on Brotherly Pod, Dan. He it wanted those. Very guys. emotional. Very emotional. Very you know, emotional. Every toy that's out there. Exactly. But look, we disagreed on that. But the difference with Dan is, is that he stayed consistent that that's the direction he wanted them to take. And still to this one. day, he, he picked, picked one. And said, this is the one I believe they should go. And I didn't, he didn't pick two. That yeah, can with each other. Exactly. And like, even if we disagree on things, I've always respected Dan because he stays steadfast in the approach he wants. But a lot of people here have been complaining for the better part of 18 months that they want a rebuild. They want a reset. Stop, you know, sacrificing long term. Stop mortgaging the future for like a mediocre present, a mediocre product in the here and now. But now that they've done that, there's a lot of people that are still upset. And Russ is correct in that, is that the same people who were bitching and moaning that they didn't want them to go out and, you know, mortgage the future, you know, what was it, 10 months ago? Oh, everyone was mocking aggressive retool, right? Everyone was making fun of them for that. And then when they decided to pivot and actually do a pseudo rebuild, now people are still not happy. But I think in Russ's case, like, I mean, I, 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 I get it what he's saying. And I do agree with what he said much to what you said is that I think that this is probably the best thing long-term, but I don't like that you know, it's no secret that he mocked them openly for going at, for not going after guys like Goudreau and Alex Debrinkat. And I mean, like, look at what those guys are doing. 
like Columbus and Ottawa are two of the worst teams in the conference. So that just goes to show that two wingers can only do so much to turn around an otherwise poorly constructed roster, which is why I wasn't in favor of of trading your fifth overall pick for Debrinkat or gutting your your or not gutting your system, but like parting with another first round pick to bring in a giant Gaudreau and spending ninety million dollars on the guy. Yeah. So I it's mean, worked out in Columbus so far. Exactly. How much has he moved the needle in Columbus? You know, how, how much has DeBrincat moved the needle in Ottawa? Yeah, you're looking at the last place team in the Atlantic and the last place team in the Metro. Exactly. And I think DeBrincat has struggled more so than Goudreau on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it's like, look, if you want to pick a direction and you think that they should have gone balls to the wall and spent as much to improve the team and you're pissed that it's a lo- another losing season, I'll disagree with you. But fine, at least you're being genuine. But I think that what a lot of people have kind of deferred to now is like a fake outrage approach yep. that like if the team goes left, they'll go right. The, the team goes up, they'll go down. They say blue, they'll say red. Yep. And that's I don't like the disingenuous outrage. That's the one thing that kind of gets on my nerves. Yeah. And it's the lack of consistency. And then the other part where he says the them, the injuries aren't the GM's fault. Me building a roster that relies on injury prone players contributing and staying healthy is, is Konechny an injury prone player? Is Lawton no. an injury prone player? Has Cam Atkinson been an injury prone player? You know, no. you know what I mean? Like, I mean, Allison, we know about the history. He, yeah, he has been injury prone uh, since, you know, going back into the late part of his college career. Couturier wasn't injury prone until the back, but that was known before the season. Um, and JVR is not necessarily an injury-prone player either. So it, it doesn't make sense. You know, is it Chuck Fletcher's fault that they have all these injuries? Is is he one of the guys to blame for all this? Like, Charlie's done a couple – did an article on this. Let me, let me bring up his headline here. I read it. It was a really good piece by Charlie O'Connor. He's done a good job breaking this down. Yeah. He's done a really good job. It, it's – you know – he said the debate regarding whether the Flyers are ridiculously unlucky or inherently flawed is pointless as they creep towards another 10 game losing streak. They're both. And the article is about, you know, everybody wants, I always go back to the movie, the unforgiven. Everybody wants to put a, a body on the porch. You know, Clint Eastwood said, you, sh- you just shot an unarmed man. He said, he should have thought about that before he uh, decorated his bar with my friend. Right. You always want a body. You need somebody to blame for where you are. Things aren't going well. And the injuries aren't the only part of it. They're a flawed roster, fully healthy. But is it Chuck Fletcher's fault that they have this litany of injuries? I mean, this is freak show shit. Yeah, it's it's fucking nuts. And it's so funny that we're here one year later because we're approaching the one year anniversary of when AV got canned. If I'm not mistaken, it was December 3rd or somewhere in that neighborhood. I believe it was, yeah. And I remember when we were a pro, like when it was coming to a head right around this time last year. And, you know, a lot of people had already turned on AV going into last season, some justified, some not. But I remember, you know, Dan and I would do our shows and I would tweet about just like, yo, you could fire AV, but it's not going to fix this. Like he's a part of the problem, but he isn't the problem. And I remember joking about like once AV goes, it's just going to shift to Fletcher. Then once Fletcher, if, and when he goes, it's just going to shift to Dave Scott. Like 
And it is just so funny that it's just poetically gone that way, that everyone just hated AV. He was the boogeyman. It was all his fault. It was everything wrong under the sun was AV's fault. And this is not to say that AV was absolved of blame. It was time for him to go. He made mistakes, all that. But AV went and then nothing really changed. And now we've moved on to Chuck Fletcher. And obviously Chuck Fletcher has much more to do with the construction of the roster than AV. Obviously coaches have nothing, not a whole lot to do with that. Although AV did ask for a lot of the players that they got last season. But now we've pivoted to hate towards Chuck Fletcher. And look, there's enough of what Chuck Fletcher has done during his regime to point blame at him for, you know, not going hard enough to improve the team at the 2020 deadline, sitting on his hands in the 2020 off season, you know, uh, trading a haul for Ristolainen when they probably weren't in a position to do that. Whatever you want to blame him for. The the deception at the last year's trade deadline heading into the offseason, whatever. But to blame him for injuries, like, I can't really blame him for that. And even the Sean Couturier thing is like, look, I was a guy that thought they should have moved on from Sean Couturier. Full disclosure. I've told you that. Whether you agree or disagree, that's where my standpoint was. But even with that being said, when they signed him, the guy had yet to experience all these injury issues. So had you not signed him, and let's say your plan was to go into the last season to potentially move him at the deadline, and he got hurt anyway, nothing would have changed in that regard. You can't trade a, a hurt player for a haul, which would have been the theoretical goal if you wouldn't have signed him heading into last summer. So, I mean, the injury thing for me is not something you can point the blame at Chuck Fletcher on, especially when you're seeing the amount of injuries league-wide. Like, I use Toronto as an example. Like, Kyle Dubas, to me, is a very, you know, meh GM in terms of how he's constructed that team. I think it's flawed in a lot of ways, specifically the bottom six up front. But is it his fault that Morgan Riley and TJ Brody and Jake Muzzin all got hurt at the same time? I can't blame him for that. And I no, think that's still exactly. And you're seeing all these injuries across the NHL right now. And I think a large part of it is due to the incredibly condensed schedule over the last 24 months. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's $38 million sitting in Columbus right now. Couturier yep. leading up to uh, his extension, the 17, 18 season, all 82, 18, 19, he played 80 games. Uh, 19, 20, played 69 of 69 games. The next year, it was a 54-game schedule. He played 45 of those, but he was on COVID protocol is why he missed games there. And then last year, obviously, he got hurt, and he played 29 games and hasn't played yet this year. So I'm not going to say that he was an injury-prone player. He missed a little bit of playoff time, the shoulder when Ovechkin destroyed him uh, at the red line. Uh, against the boards, yeah, he missed him. He missed some time. Atkinson's a guy that you know in 1920 missed some games. Played for only 44, but prior to that, played 80. After that, played 56 in the 2021 season. Every game that season, and last year played 73 games. So you don't expect that to happen where you haven't seen either of these guys so far this year. That's the point. And like I'm taking it easy on Russ today because tomorrow's Thanksgiving. I'm in the holiday spirit. <laughs> Um, but I find this string of tweets in, very disingenuous, again, because you cannot have it both ways. You can't bitch because they didn't go get Debrinket. Like, he just put out a tweet last week when Debrinket scored against him twice, but lamenting the fact that they didn't get him. And, yeah. they're saying they, and, and look, the, op, the, the tanking word, do 
do you think a team that hires John Tortorella is going to tank? No fucking way. Like, is that yeah. a lack of awareness? Like, they're, they're never going to tank. And well, it, I've yet to see where – look, if you want to go through a pronounced rebuild and tear down to, to build up, okay. But the tanking word to me is kind of ridiculous. Well, it's because it could always blow up in your face, right? And, you know, I think that you couldn't tank anyway with who's under contract and what you couldn't tank. And I think a lot of people would say, like, the dignified tank is the best way where you're competing well and you're competing hard and you're setting a standard and you're not sacrificing. Yeah. And, you know, you looked at the Toronto Maple Leafs in the year that they drafted Austin Matthews. You know who the coach was that season? The first year of him behind the bench? The Mike Babcock. Guy. Yeah. So I'm so not saying... Be pain before we get better, too. And that's... Is that not pretty much what Tortorella said when he got here? In mm-hmm. not so many words? So, I mean, as of today, like, I think that it has been more or less a dignified tank because you're competing in games. It's not a disaster. I think that it is a very different team than we've been accustomed to the last three, four, five years. It is different. It's at least showing off what you may have with some of these players going into the future. Like, I mean, like, look, there's some players, younger players, I mean, obviously, that I think are going to have a future on this team. There's some players that I think are going to have a future on this team. But when you look at the sheer amount of volume of players they have of NH, because I think the Flyers going back to what we were talking about about half an hour ago, was that I think they have a lot of NHL caliber players, but not a lot of high-end players. And that's what you have to figure out this season. Like, for me, like, I use a guy like Morgan Frost. He's an NHL player every day of the week. But is he going to be a guy that can carve out a niche on this team long-term? And I look at what a guy like, let's say, Elliot Denway is doing in Lehigh Valley. Like, if it comes down to one of them being your long-term 3C, who are you going to pick? Yeah. Like, so... Who fits that role? Like, th- th- that's where Denwye should be. And for Morgan Frost, based on the pedigree as, that we thought, he should be in a top six role. Exactly. Or let's say, like, a guy like Wade Allison. Okay, I love the way Wade Allison is playing, or was before he got injured. But how long before, let's say a Bobby Brink gets healthy back and he comes in and he's also a right wing proly that fits that same, you know, tier as a Wade Allison as a third line right wing or what happens when a Tyson Forster shows up. Although maybe Tyson Forster is going to be pushing more guy like Owen Tippett, or then you have a Zade wisdom, you know, what are you, what's going to, what's that going to mean for a guy like Zach McEwen, who I think who is still isn't overly young. McEwen's what, like 25, 26 years old. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out the long-term roles of a lot of these guys, like Tanner Lazinski as well. Yeah. Noah Cates, I think, has a future here, even if it's as like a 4C or whatever. But that's why this season isn't so much a waste. Like 2021 was a waste. Last season was a waste. This year isn't a waste. Does it suck that it's going to come with a fuck ton of losing? Probably. Yeah, it's not fun. It's not great. Yeah. But at least you could look at this season and be like, it's anything but a waste because of the approach they took. Yeah. And I think the really important thing we'll end on this, Ant, is that we figure out a timeline, an arc. When yeah. does the clock start? Are we, by the end of the season, are we going, okay, we feel good going to this offseason. We know who's who. 
We know who's part of the solution. We know what we need to get. And, you know, a little lottery luck and, and then the draft and a good offseason, um, you could really start to get excited about something swelling uh, in Philadelphia again with the Flyers. And great stuff. We really went long today. We worked a little overtime on the uh, <laughs> eve of uh, Thanksgiving. Now, what do you do up in Canada for American Thanksgiving? Uh, nothing? Normal? <laughs> no, it's actually like we kind of celebrate it in our own way. Obviously, we still all go to work, unfortunately, but we have like the Black Friday specials everyone's big on football here like everyone goes crazy for the nfl so we still get some of the uh the shrapnel if you will from you guys down there in the states but uh yeah. it's very much celebrated up here too but in our own way nice uh well enjoy the day thanks for uh, doing this today great stuff as always and uh we'll talk next week brother yeah man try not to eat too much turkey today okay yeah. <laughs> uh, there he is anthony demarco from the fourth period.com great stuff there was a lot to talk about today and we went to a lot of directions and thanks to everybody on the stream for, you know, their questions and comments. We always appreciate that as well. Always uh, get great stuff from the, the listeners of this podcast. Now I just demand that all the listeners of this podcast leave us a five-star rating and review and uh, that'll help other hockey fans and flyer fans find this podcast that perhaps don't know about it. Uh, get the bet parks app. That's what you need to do. We've got the hockey boost tonight. The Broad Street Boost, let me give it to you, because it's a good one, a really good one tonight, and it's interesting. So it is Ovechkin and Hayes, one plus points each, and the Flyers plus one and a half in Washington tonight. Was plus 280, now it's plus 350. I'm going to cough real quick, hold on. Still dealing with this cough, the remnants thereof. Uh, so get on the Bet Parks app to get in on the Broad Street Boost, and... Uh, Hey, put some coin down on it. It's easy to use. You can bet other ways as well. Player performances, parlays, same game, parlays, live in-game betting. It's all there for you on the Bet Parks app. Download it today. It's going to be a great weekend with all the football, World Cup, so much stuff to bet on. Download the Bet Parks app today. Do you need to be over 21 and present in Pennsylvania or New Jersey? Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Other sponsor, Conquerville Subaru. Check out the dealership on Route 202 in Glen Mills. It is fantastic buy a car right now it's uh, a fantastic time to do so because they've got the great share the love event going on through january 3rd and they'll donate 250 dollars for every new subaru bought uh, to one of five charities the aspca make a wish meals on wheels nation's parks and conquerville subaru's hometown charity the namor's children's hospital of delaware visit the showroom check out the certified pre-owned inventory list of incoming subaru vehicles also great service department free car wash with every visit Check them out. Visit ConquerVilleSubaru.com. You can get all the details there and visit the showroom of Route 202 in Glen Mills. And remember, Concordville cares. All right. I want everybody to have a fantastic Thanksgiving. Enjoy it. I hope it's a good one and a safe one. And uh, we'll be back Friday. We'll be in advance of the Flyers Black Friday game against the Pittsburgh Penguins. And Brian Metzer from uh, the Penguins Radio Network is going to join us as our guest to preview that game and talk about it and talk about the Metropolitan Division and uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins and their future. A lot to get into on Friday's episode. So uh, join us then. Everybody have a great holiday. We'll talk to you in a couple days right here on Bet Parks Presents Stick to Hockey Live. <laughs>